Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and share it with others. All right, well, uh, we have finished the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and are making our way into Exodus this week. In four episodes, we got through Genesis. Yeah, and also like roughly 2,000, 2,500 years of Bible history. <laughs> There's a lot that happens in Genesis. So, But we understand we were the ones that chose to do it that way, so we cannot complain about that. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. Uh, I was very much so benefited by being able to do a flyover like that, so I hope it was helpful for everyone else. But to no surprise, the Bible story picks up in the next book. It picks up in the book of Exodus. Uh, Stephen, that, that word exodus is not really one we use outside of bible uh, contexts. So what does the word exodus mean? Well, it, it's from the Greek word. The, when the Bible is translated into, into Greek. The Greek word exodus means the way out. Yeah. And so that's what the second yeah. book of the Bible gets called because it is about the way out of Egypt. Yeah. And that's familiar to us if you're in some type of commercial building right now and you look up to where you would walk out of the structure at the top of the door is a exit sign, and that is also where we get the idea of leaving, departing. Mm-hmm. And so that is what this book is precisely about on the front end of it. Um, but the back end is more so about what God's rules and laws will look like for the people once they get into the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, the, the um, books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, the next four books of the Old Testament, are going to tell one big story about the transition of the Israelites as they went down to Egypt. And then by the time they get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, they are a full-fledged nation with laws and regulations, and they are coming into the land of Canaan, um, just like God promised they would. Remember, the book of Genesis uh, we talked about last week ended with Joseph saying, hey, when you leave Egypt, like I realize you're coming down here, uh, for me to provide for you, but you're not going to stay here forever. And when you leave, take my bones with you and bury me in Canaan because I'm not, the nation is not going to stay in Egypt mm-hmm. forever. So the book of Exodus is going to start out moving very quickly. Yes. Um, yeah. there, there's about 430 years of history that are covered just in the first chapter of the book of Exodus. Yeah. And it starts by telling us, uh, just quite simply, the names of those sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So that was uh, Exodus 1 verse 2 says it was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And so you're already starting to see a fulfillment of the promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, who at the time, remember, Sarah was barren, not able to have children. God said, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand that's on the seashore, and that he is going to, from Abraham, make this great nation. And so you are already starting to see a fulfillment of that in the book of Exodus, to the point where it tells us that there are so many of these Israelites that the Egyptians start to fear the Israelites because if they wanted to, because of how many there are, they could rise up against the Egyptians and take over. That's right. And that's really what leads to the enslavement of this group of people, which again, it's not really a nation yet. 
It's a large, large family of the Hebrew people who have come to Egypt and the land of Goshen. And um, there's a new Pharaoh that comes up that he did not know Joseph. That's Exodus 1, 8. And they're scared enough that they enslave this people, make life incredibly bitter for them. Um, in verse 13, it says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Um, and then to add to that oppression, they are so scared of the nation growing that they decide all the baby boys need to die. Mm-hmm. And so they give instruction to the Hebrew midwives uh, to throw the children, uh, to, to kill them. Um, and uh, it, it uh, these midwives fear the Lord mm-hmm. more than they fear Pharaoh. And so they uh, do not do that. They, they rebel against the, the word of the king. And it ends up telling us that God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. And so, man, it, them rebelling against, um, against the, the Pharaoh, in effect, just rapidly grew the nation even more. And by the way, that is so consistent throughout the Bible. Like when, when God's people will do what God wants, d- despite what the nation wants, the opposite ends up tend to happen uh, because God's hand is on the situation. You see that in the book of Acts. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the more the foreign nations tried to shut up the Christians, the more Christianity grew. Mm-hmm. And in like manner here, the more that Pharaoh was trying to control the population of the Israelites, it grew even more. That's right. And so it's into this context that Moses is born. And um, he's from the house of Levi. In chapter 2, a a man in the house of Levi takes a Levite woman as his wife. And she sees something special about Moses when he is born. And she hides him for three months. Because, again, at the end of chapter 1, all of the Egyptians are told, if you um, see a, a Hebrew son, throw him in the Nile. Like, just there is an all-out war against the children that are, are being born to the to the Israelites. And she can't hide him after three months as he grows and it's harder to contain. And so she makes a, a basket for him, Exodus 2 verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. What's kind of interesting here is this word for basket is actually the same word that was used in Genesis 6 through 9 to talk about an ark. So it's obviously not a huge, huge boat here. It's a little little basket for one, but it's the same word as ark. And 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 so we're going to start to see these parallel stories developing of God, you know, rescuing Noah and his family through water. And now Moses, his story starts out with an ark of sorts, kind of a mini ark, and him being rescued through the water, uh, whereas other Hebrew boys were being thrown into the Nile uh, in oppression. Moses is going to be drawn out. Mm-hmm. And again, you just see God's providence here. Yes. That he is put in the Nile in this basket, and where should he end up? But at Pharaoh's house, you might think, oh, no, like that's the center of the oppression. Like This is the worst thing that could happen. And yet Pharaoh's daughter has compassion on um, this child and takes him in, which is just amazing. But what's really interesting is 
Pharaoh's daughter will tell her sister, um, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And so you see the providence of God here again in that Moses is reunited with his birth mother, and she's even paid a wage to nurse and raise her child. And so God's hand is all over this situation. And so Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses in verse 10 uh, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The name Moses sounds like the word for drawn out. And this is going to be really interesting because this is what Moses is going to be used by God to do for the nation of Israel, is to draw them out of Egypt and uh, bring them to the promised land. So here's where, again, the story. We've already had 430 years of slavery that have been just passed over in the first few verses. And now we fast forward 40 years in Moses' life when he's a little baby, you know, just three months old. Um, He's rescued. Now he has been raised at least a little bit. Um, He grows older. We don't know exactly how old he was when Moses' mom gives him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And so he's raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household, educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. And now we're fast-forwarding 40 years in Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses here identifies with his own people and says, my people are being you know, oppressed. I'm going to rise up and try to deliver them. And so he does. He kills the Egyptian who is oppressing his brother and then hides the body. And then verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And there's going to be a whole story that that comes out of this. But Moses goes from being way high up, you know, a son of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, to trying to deliver his people. They basically reject his deliverance and say, who made you a judge over us? And then when he finds out that it's known... Moses becomes a fugitive way out in the land of Midian for the next 40 years of his life. So he's 40 when this happens, so he'll be ages 40 to 80 as he's in Midian. And to be honest with you, things seem pretty good for Moses out where he was. Uh, He settles down, he gets a wife, he has a couple children, um, seems to be enjoying life when chapter 3 comes about. Um, Because all the while that he's dwelling in Midian, um, it tells us in chapter 2, 23, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. So the whole time while Moses is gone, life might be somewhat enjoyable for him, the people are still suffering. Mm-hmm. And God hears their cry, and God is going to do something about it. Yeah, I love that verse 25. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Um, 
he is not deaf to their cries. He sees their oppression, and it's going to be in direct response to their crying out to God that God shows up to Moses in the burning bush in the very next chapter. So let's just read this, uh, Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6, famous story here. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. By the way, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai later on, we learn. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Okay, so Stephen, can you explain maybe some of the significance of this? I mean, it's kind of an odd story. Moses just walking around, and why is it that God appears to Moses in a burning bush? Is there any symbolism behind that? I think we do see that later in the story, God is going to be described as a consuming fire several times. But what's interesting about this bush is that it's burning with fire, and yet it is not consumed. And that is essentially the way God reveals himself to Moses is in a kind of a terrifying way, but also in a way like, wait, that bush should be being burned up, and yet it's not being burned up. And that's what God is going to do with the people of Israel, is he's going to take them out, and they're going to dwell with God, who is a holy God, who is a jealous God, who is a God of wrath and judgment, rightly so, but also make a way for them to dwell with hymns in a way that they're not consumed, that they become a holy nation, and there's atonement made for their sins, and they're able to dwell with the consuming fire, God, without being burned up. So it's kind of interesting that right from the beginning, there's some symbolism going on with the burning bush. Yes, and they're going to go through fire. They're going to go through hard things and yet not be consumed is, is I think, the idea. So I think that's exactly right. And so um, God calls Moses here. Um, He is, But he first introduces himself, which I think is kind of cool. In verse 6, I am the God of your father, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And look at Moses' response. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Mm -hmm. That's important to see because, A, that is an appropriate response, I think. (laughs) I mean, that is what any time you see someone come before the Father in Scripture, it's often, if not every time, a terrifying experience where people will fall down on their face in fear and terror. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so Moses here, God is going to commission him. And again, Moses, he's 80 years old at this point. He spent 40 years in Pharaoh's house. He spent 40 years shepherding out in Midian, being a nobody in the middle of nowhere. And now God shows up to him as like, I want you to go because I've seen my people in Egypt. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And now I want you to go to Pharaoh and bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Verse 10. 
And Moses is going to respond with five excuses. We won't have time to go through all of them, but basically he starts out by saying, who, who am I that I should go? And God's response is, I will be with you. And the idea, I think, is it doesn't matter really who you are. If I'm with you, it doesn't matter. Uh, if God's with us, who can be against us? Yes. And so who am I is the first excuse. Yeah, Moses then goes to God and is like, okay, well, what are the sons of Israel going to say? Who do I even tell them what you are, who you are? What yeah. is his name? Who are you? Yeah. And God's answer to Moses is, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Which is, which is a little bit curious. Um, but really what it hits on is God's eternal nature. Um, it, it's in the present tense. And it kind of goes forward and backward. God has always been. There's really no gender assigned to God. He he is deity, is the idea, eternal going forward and backward. He is the everything, I think, is the idea here. Yeah, and, and so the, the the word in verse 15, uh, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Um Our Bibles will often um, use that phrase, the Lord, but they'll put Lord in like the small caps. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like the O-R-D is like little, but it's capital letters. And that represents God's personal name. And it's really not pronounceable in any language, but it is, we we assign vowels to it. And it's either pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you pronounce it. Um. But it, it sounds like that Hebrew word for I am. So when we're saying Yahweh or Jehovah, we're, we're distinguishing the, the God of Israel from other gods like Dagon or Ra or Moloch or whatever other god. Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord, all caps Lord, is a personal name of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as distinct from all these idols, these other gods. Because, of course, Egypt was a land filled with quote-unquote gods. And Moses is going to go to the people of Israel and say, hey, God has come to me. They're like, well, well which one? <laughs> and so this is a really important moment when God explains his name to Moses. And this is going to be, he says, this is my name forever. Like, I'm always going to be known by this name. Uh, so tell them that I am Yahweh, Jehovah. I, I, this is the God who is sending Moses. And so God will proceed to tell Moses what the plan is. Um, I'm going to bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, verse 17, to the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Which already, if you're Moses hearing that, you're sitting there going, okay, well, you're taking us to a land of our own, great. But there's people in there. (laughs) There are people already in that land. What's the implication? You're going to kick them out. That is going to be your land. And so God is calling Moses to not only a hard task to get them out of Egypt, but to then lead them to this land and then get everyone out of that land so that they can possess it and have it. And so, but God is kind of like one thing at a time. First, we got to get you out of Egypt. And so this is what it's going to look like. I know that the king of Egypt is not going to let you go. And so I'm going to send these plagues and do these miracles so that he will end up letting you go. And I'm going to grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. And he tells them that they're going to take all the silver and gold with them as they plunder the Egyptians on the way out. And so God, from the forefront, gives Moses the game plan. That's right. And so Moses has some more questions. What if they don't believe me? 
Um, and so God says, well, here's some signs. You know, what's that in your hand? A staff? We're going to use that to do some miracles. And Moses gets a little more desperate. He says, well, I'm, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak well. Well, who made man's mouth? I will be with your mouth. Yeah. And then finally Moses just says, Lord, please send someone else. I, I don't want to be the one to go. And he says, okay, I'll give you your, your brother Aaron. Um, he can speak. Uh, he's going to meet you. Um, and so he'll go with you and be your mouth. Uh, when you go. And so Moses does finally get up and leave Midian um, with his brother Aaron and go back to Pharaoh. And we're going to see kind of initially uh, the first round of interactions with Pharaoh really does not go well. Mm -hmm. Um, In chapter 5, they go to Pharaoh and, you know, this is the famous phrase, chapter 5, verse 1, afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, all caps, the God of Israel, again, talking to Pharaoh, explaining who this God is, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then things are just going to get worse for the people of Israel because of this interaction. Uh, Pharaoh takes away their uh, straw to make bricks, and yet he requires the same quota of bricks from them. And so things are just getting worse. Um, And the people cry out, and they come against Moses and say, uh, you know, what's going on? You've made life terrible for us in chapter 5 verse 20 they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us and then Moses goes back to God and says oh Lord why have you done evil to this people why did you ever send me for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all and I love God's response to that, which is basically in chapter 6, 1, sit back. Um, I'm in the driver's seat. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to, uh, he says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. And he goes on to say, I am the Lord. I am, I am the one that appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty. And by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And so I'm going to establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. God gave Moses the best thing he could in that moment. You know what that was? His word. Mm -hmm. And that should be enough. That should be enough for Moses, and that should be enough for us as well. And so God follows through with this. Um, God will plague Israel. Um, He will will continue. (laughs) Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. Um, He will plague Egypt. Um, Starting with, uh, I guess it will be the water turning to blood in chapter 7. Yeah, that's right. So Moses, having been strengthened by God's word in Exodus chapter 6, this is a really cool section to read through and go through slowly sometime. Um, Moses goes to Pharaoh again and again. And what we're going to see over and over again in this section is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which is just kind of an interesting theme. We won't delve down every rabbit trail here. But sometimes it's going to say Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes it's going to say God hardened his heart. And sometimes it's going to say Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say how. But through all of this, I think what we're going to see is God is using a wicked, stubborn, selfish man to ultimately accomplish his will. He knows what Pharaoh's going to do, and he knows how to provoke Pharaoh. And ultimately, God is going to be glorified 
over and over again, these plagues, the, the water turning to blood, frogs, lice or gnats, uh, flies, the livestock dying, boils, hail, uh, locusts, darkness, and ultimately the death of the firstborn are going to be a judgment against not only Pharaoh, but against the gods of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Again, they had gods for all these different things. And every time God, uh, you know, if he turns the Nile River to blood, well, where's your Nile God now? Mm -hmm. You know, God seems to turn it to blood. And when he turns out the lights, you know, in the darkness plague, well, where's Ra, your sun god? You know, God is the true God, and these other idols can't save you. Yeah, and what's interesting is, as you read through a couple of these plagues, it gets to the point where some of the magicians of the land are in some way able to mimic what uh, Moses was able to do by God's power. But it will eventually get to the point where the the magicians cannot mimic it. Um, It gets to the point where it is clearly the hand of the Lord, and even they are starting to recognize that very fact. But there's really a cat and mouse game with Pharaoh throughout these chapters. We're looking at chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, where... Pharaoh will start to let the people go, and then he doesn't. And you just kind of see him going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until finally you get to that final plague in chapter 11. That's right. And and this is the one that is going to just be different than the other plagues. There's a lot more detail given, a lot more setup. And one of the things that Israel is given in preparation for this final plague is a feast called the Passover. And it's called the Passover because when the death angel goes out over the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn in every household, there is something the Israelites can do to cause the plague to pass over their house. And so that's why this feast is called the Passover. They'll be delivered from the plague by doing several things, getting all the leaven out of their house, preparing this lamb in a specific way, but killing the lamb and taking the blood of the lamb and putting it over the doorposts of the house. And he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And of course, we're just going to see so much foreshadowing here of Jesus, the idea of the blood of the lamb. And you will be spared from death because God allows the lamb to die and its blood to be spread over the house. And now the firstborn in the house is spared from death because of the death of the lamb. And so again, all of these things are going to ultimately point to Jesus. And there's lots of things we could talk about with the Passover meal, pointing to Jesus, when Jesus ultimately institutes the Lord's Supper in the New Testament and talks about his death. And this this is my body. This is my blood. It's during the Passover meal that Jesus does that. He connects his death with the death of the Passover lamb. And so Even as Egypt is being destroyed, their gods are being judged, the Lord is setting up a shadow of the ultimate deliverance from sin and slavery that Jesus is going to accomplish at the cross. And the emphasis, or excuse me, this memorial feast that is introduced now, um, Moses tells them what it's for uh, in chapter 12 and verse 24. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever, For when you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. I think this is really cool, the foresight of Moses here. He's saying there will be a day where your children are not going to remember or know that this event took place. 
But this memorial feast will represent what God did for their parents or grandparents or so forth and so on uh, all those years ago. And the unleavened bread is kind of representative of the fact that they had to eat in haste. They didn't even have the time to let the bread rise or use leaven. They just had to cook it and go and eat. And they had to leave in, in a section or in a, in a split second to get out of Egypt. The Passover lamb representing the mercy of God and the fact that something else died in their place. And can you kind of hear the, the messianic overtones as we talk about this? This all is ultimately pointing to Jesus. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Um, and so there are so many symbol, uh, symbolic things happening in these chapters right now. Yeah. And, and one of the things we're going to see here is that the exodus is going to kind of, I mean, that's a, the event of them leaving. It's the way out. But the exodus is tied to the Passover um, the people are being delivered from multiple things here. Mm-hmm. They're being delivered from the 10th plague, uh, from the death of the firstborn. They're being delivered from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and they're, in a minute, they're going to be delivered from the Red Sea and the, the obstacle that stood between them. And they're going to be delivered from the Egyptian army who is behind them. And then they're going to be delivered from the wilderness ahead of them. So the Exodus is, is several events but all of this is going to be something that God wants his people to remember. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what I did for you. And this is going to be really important for us. I mean, and this is why God gives us the Lord's Supper, right? That we take on the first day of the week like the Christians did. Remember what Jesus did for you. And it's so easy for us to forget after someone has done such goodness, such kindness to us that we just take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And we need a way of calling to mind and walking back through the events of what God did so that we never forget and never uh, take for granted uh, the good things that God has done for us because that will motivate our service to him. And the way that we live is changed. And this event, the Exodus, is the deliverance event of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament story, there would be several references throughout where he says, hey, remember the Exodus? Hey, remember the Exodus? Hey, remember what God did for you in Egypt? That is going to become like the way that you know God's going to deliver you again is because of what God did for his people in this historic event. And so on their way out, just as Moses had commanded them in chapter 12 and verse 35, um, they had taken from the Egyptians the silver and gold and clothing. Just as the Lord had said and told them to do, they plundered the Egyptians. Uh, Egyptians, And this is also where we learn in verse 37, Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. Man, that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. These nation. people had, had multiplied greatly up until this point. And so uh, verse 40 tells us, Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That's right. And so the Lord is keeping his promises. God had promised to Abram way back in Genesis that they were going to be slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And now God is keeping his promises that they are coming out of the land of Egypt. And God is taking care of them and fulfilling his promises. And so as we get into the last little section here, um, the, the Exodus is going to be a complicated event. Because Pharaoh, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh is going to say, get out. I don't want to see you again. 
get out every person be gone um and so they do go out and navigating in the wilderness is going to be really difficult and at the end of chapter 13 god is going to provide for his people by um showing them where to go in exodus 13 21 it says and the lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people so God is clearly showing them very obviously which direction to go. This right. is not just a feeling they have or trying to guess or, or anything like that. God's showing them exactly where they should go. Right before that, i like to point out in uh, chapter 13 and verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with yes, him. For yes. he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. That's Genesis 50. That's what we were talking about earlier uh, in last week's podcast. Joseph said... You ain't leaving my body here. When we leave, because I know we're going to leave, we're gonna. You're going to take my my bones out. And Moses honors that, so that's super cool to see here. Amen. So the actual Exodus happens when the children of Israel leave Goshen, leave the land of Egypt, but then they're they're headed out kind of into the wilderness, and they come across the first obstacle. They they come to the Red Sea, and there's actually an interesting thing that happens at the beginning of Exodus 14 that's easy to forget is that God actually leads them backwards a little bit and baits Pharaoh into getting his army out because Pharaoh once again has a change of heart, although the children of Israel have actually left this time. And he says, what have I done? You know, I'm going to go out and, and recapture my slaves. And so by them turning back, God is going to be even more glorified because he's going to not only rescue Israel, but he's going to destroy the Egyptian army in the process. So he kind of baits them as they kind of turn back and then proceed. And what happens is they get to the Red Sea, and now the people realize that the Egyptians are chasing them, and they feel totally trapped. There is the sea on one hand, which they can't get through, and there's the army on the other hand. And it's in this moment that Moses... uh, cries out to God, and he says, Here, here's what God's going to do. He's going he's gonna to rescue you. Um, in verse uh, Exodus 14, 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And right before that in verse 14, uh, Moses had said, Yahweh will fight for you while you keep silent. (laughs) Mm, That's right. (laughs) Just sit back. Uh, God, God is in control here. He will... He will take care of this situation. And I like the ESV's translation of that. It will be to his glory that he is able to take care of the situation um, and, and take care of the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh keeps on coming. Um, he keeps keeps bringing his army. At no point does he try to turn back around. And uh, it says in Exodus 14, 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. I think we sometimes think of this event being done in about you know 15 minutes. Uh, remember, there are 600,000 besides the children and likely women. There's a lot of people that got to cross the Red Sea here. And so the sons of Israel in verse 22, 
went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. And at the morning watch, Yahweh looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. And while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw that the Egyptians were dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. It's really a beautiful story um, of putting trust in God. I often think about what it would have been like to have been crossing through, yes, you're on dry land, but seeing those walls of water on your left and right, I think that's why it emphasizes it two or three times because it speaks to the faith of the people. I mean, what are they going to do if the water starts coming down? Put their arms up and stop it? You know, they are completely at the mercy of God here. And I think the people realize that. And that's why in Hebrews 11, it'll actually call attention by faith. The children of Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They had no choice but to put their trust in God here. They had to. Mm-hmm. And God is keeping his promises. Um, he leads them through the midst of the water and takes care of them. And it, it's really cool here to see in Exodus 15, there's a retelling of the story in poetry form. They, they sing this song um, to the Lord, talking about how he's a warrior, and he has delivered them. Uh, the horse and its rider he's thrown into the sea. And this song, there's going to be little snippets of this song that are echoed throughout the Old Testament and the prophets and other places to talk about God's ability to save his people, his ability to take care of them and bring them out of slavery, because this is not the only time that Israel is going to be enslaved by another nation in their Mm -hmm. history. And so, again, what God is doing in the Exodus is just setting up a series of patterns, and he's going to repeat this cycle for future generations and say, if you'll trust me, I'll deliver you like I delivered my people from Egypt but you've got to trust me. You've got to believe that I can do this, even when it seems impossible. And you've got a sea on one hand and an army on the other. God can deliver you. God can protect you if you will trust him. And one of the interesting themes that's going to be set up, and we've talked about this a little bit already in Genesis, is the theme of salvation through water. Um, We've seen this already in the story of the flood and how God used water to separate the righteous from the wicked The same flood that swept away the wicked was a source of rescue for the righteous. And the same thing with the Exodus story here. His people passed through on dry land. The Egyptians, when they try to pass through, are destroyed. The same water destroys the wicked and rescues the righteous. And we're just going to see this pattern continue right on through. The next generation that goes into Canaan is going to see the Jordan River parted in a similar way. 
And on down, there's going to be different healings that happen in the Old Testament where water is the dividing line between being healed and being sick. Um, and ultimately, we're going to see water being the dividing line in the New Testament between being in slavery to sin and being forgiven of those sins, freed from those sins in the waters of baptism. We are immersed in water, passed through the water like Israel did in the Exodus. Um, all of these are symbols that are they're literal historical events that become symbols of God's deliverance from an even greater form of slavery and sin and death. I mean, God is foreshadowing the defeat of the sin problem yes. that we talked about in Genesis, all through these stories of salvation in the Old Testament. And so by looking at the symbolism of the, the form of the deliverance, you see that echoed in the New Testament, like Stephen said. But you also see some symbolism or foreshadowing with the leader himself, Moses. In Hebrews chapter 3, it kind of picks up on this idea. As he calls attention to Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, he says about him in Hebrews 3.3, He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, that's Jesus, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Jesus is our deliverer. He is the one that came and took us out of bondage and slavery to sin and brought us through to paradise. And Jesus was much more faithful than Moses was. Moses was a faithful servant of God, and he's talked about a lot in the New Testament in positive ways. But let's be honest, he was flaky at times. He was, he was nervous. He had excuses on the front end of things. The point the Hebrew writer is making is Jesus was much, much, much better than Moses um, and we need to be thankful for that. We need to put our trust in him, not in Moses. That's right. And, man, if you start to go back through the whole life of Moses and look at how many ways Moses parallels Jesus, we're going to talk more about this as Moses. is not His job is not done. He's got another 40 years of service ahead of him now that the Lord has used him to bring Israel out of Egypt. He's going to shepherd God's people in the wilderness after being a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years, a different kind of shepherding. But Jesus and Moses are so closely yes. linked. There's several contrasts, like you've mentioned, but so many points of comparison. And we're going to see an even greater deliverance and an even greater law given through Jesus. Yeah. So all of these things are going to point us forward to him. Yeah. One final thing I'll mention is in Hebrews 11, talking about Moses, it says, He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, he was looking to the reward. Mm -hmm. As impressive as that is about Moses, guess what? That's exactly what Jesus did. He gave up the, the splendors and the wonders of heaven to come down to suffer with and for his people so that we may be delivered. In a very similar way, Moses did as well. That's right. So all of this ultimately is pointing to Christ. And if we can leave you with anything in this episode, it's that see Jesus in the Old Testament. See that he is the one you need to be following. He is our deliverer. He is the one that is the Passover lamb. Yeah. Amen. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please uh, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you have questions, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can reach out to us, uh, 717-585-0949. You can text us or call us or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information or online studies, uh, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.